Hey there, everyone. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. Got a fun little episode going on today and kind of a, an interesting trend that I've noticed is as we're all in quarantine, start to see a lot more pictures on Instagram of people baking. There's been a lot of baking of bread and sourdough and all this stuff. And just as a coincidence, I've noticed we've had a lot more bakeries and bakers on the podcast lately, which has not been intentional, but it's been a fun trend and one that we are continuing today. Today, we've got Luke Maybe. He is the owner of Culprit Cafe here in Omaha. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. Okay, so I, I want to start here and just kind of introduce Culprit, which I think is just such a unique concept and restaurant because the first time that I went with my wife I thought it was kind of like a coffee house just kind of breakfast and brunch place and then we go in and I'm looking through the menu and I'm like okay now there's a bon mi sandwich on the menu yes there's the pastry counter that I expected but then there's also like cocktails and there's you know a dinner menu and like you know you can stay late and it's like almost like a bar option and yeah. I was just like, this place is everything. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. just kind of when you were conceptualizing um, Culprit Cafe, how did you come up with what it is now? Well, what it is now is um, it's an evolution of cafe culture. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that uh, we've adopted and really just honed in on with Culprit. Um, cafe culture is kind of hard to explain. Sometimes, because I mean, it can be anything like depending on um, whether you're in France, whether you're in New York, whether you're in like rural Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, cafe culture to me is an adoption of all day culture. And mm-hmm. really for us, um, when I look at what we provide is the fact that uh, you come to us. This isn't like a um, a, a sit down restaurant where. Um, it's like fine dining mm-hmm. where you're, where you come into the doors, we come, they would come to you. Uh, then we would seat you and then we're kind of pacing everything. Cafe culture is you're a busy person. You have things going on. Like you're a morning person, you're a nighttime person, you're studying, you're working, like there's all these different things. And so for you to have quality high end ingredients and service at your own pace, is kind of hard to come by. So you're somebody that comes in at like eight o'clock or seven o'clock right away and you need your coffee, you got to go, you know, and then you're just like in and out. Then you come back and, and it's now like, um, you're setting up some meetings and you're meeting up with three or four other people. And now you need to decompress a little bit and you got tea and you're having, um, a sandwich or pastry, you know? And so these are the things that we're trying to adapt to, what people need on a daily basis. And that to me is cafe culture. Mm, so, interesting. I like and that so, a lot. Yeah. Uh, trying to bring that in is really just trying to get acquainted with your community. So um, what ke- what culprit is at downtown is different than what it is at midtown. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what we deliver is now deli- different than what's provided at the restaurants. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So out just outside of this whole coronavirus situation that we're currently in, what yeah. is kind of the difference in the two locations? You opened the original one downtown, I believe, in 2013. Yeah. And then the midtown location in 2018. Mm-hmm. 
how do those two, you mentioned they kind of have a, you know, a little bit different purpose, a little bit different vibe. What is the difference there? Uh, Midtown is, uh, is much more of a community because mm-hmm. I mean, we have so many people that are surrounding us. Um, and actually, um, we, we really found out that downtown was a destination. We had all these people during the workday, but then on the weekends, it was a destination. Mm. So, um, when we moved to Midtown, then all of a sudden we found out that all of our customers that were making us a destination are living right across the street yeah, or right behind us. So um, downtown was, um, it was hard for us. We never really um, moved towards nighttime. And so downtown provided more of the, we have cocktails and we do all kinds of drinks at downtown, but Midtown became all right, we're open much later. We're going to have a later menu. We're going to actually have dinner. We're going to have more cocktails. We're going to have a bartender that's pretty much just dedicated towards that. Mm-hmm. So. Now, you mentioned there are, these, there are these different types of cafes that you can draw inspiration from, um, you know, whether it's overseas, whether it's New York, which I know where you, you've spent time mm-hmm. in New York. Um, th- there's rural cafes. Is there any particular one that you found yourself drawing more inspiration for as you originally formed the idea behind Culprit? Not so much. Not so much in the beginning um, because it also kind of pulls off of who's opening it and what they're... So I I, I guess New York in general is just my inspiration Mm -hmm. because waking up there and going to work and seeing all the different... Um, restaurants and establishments around there. Like you go to a block, a, one block in New York will probably have everything. Mm-hmm. You'll have your dry cleaner. You'll have your bodega. You'll have like your bakery around there. You'll have like all of these. You'll have everything just on your block. And so um, just kind of feeling, feeding off of what each establishment has and like feeding off the personalities and kind of it's more of a – Um, understanding of what trying to know yourself more than anything. And so um, I'm more of a baker than I am a a chef. Mm -hmm. And so leaning more towards breads and pastries. And and that's kind of the, the core ethos of culprit is the fact that if I'm going to create a dish, I want to start with the highest quality bread and pair it with the highest quality protein Mm -hmm. and then work our way from there. And, and evolve around that. And so um, I would just say in general, my motivation and ins- inspiration was just New York. I mean, it's a fascinating place. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they have everything. And you'll go to uh, a little hole-in-the-wall st- place, and then you'll find um, just like the most incredible dish you've ever had. I mean, I remember going to work, and um, a friend uh, or my my head chef walked in and she just threw a whole bunch of shopows on on the on the table, and shopow is um, it, some com, some people would call them bayos, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a place called hippeo. Yeah, yeah. They're, so they're the same kind thing. of dumplings. Yeah, type they're of steamed. Things. Yeah, and steamed it's, dumplings. It's kind of like a combination of clotchy meats, yeah. dumpling meats, runza meats, <laughs> you know. And so, but they're steamed meat filled dough pocket. Yeah, yes. exactly. Just the original hot pocket uh-huh. and so she just threw those things down i was starving i just like ate one i was like 
this is life changing. Uh-huh. This is incredible. Where did you get this? I don't know. I was, I saw somebody selling them over here and where I was coming down and it's like, how did you, so you just stumbled on this place and it was amazing. It's like, how many times can you do that? Not, not very many, but yeah. it's always a very pleasurable experience when it does happen. Oh man. Yeah. So how did you get into this? You just mentioned that your, your passion really kind of lies on the baking side of things. How, how did you get into the restaurant industry and then into owning your own place? Oh, getting into restaurants was kind of quite the evolution. Um, so when I got out of, um, maybe I should just run through the gambit of let's do it. You know, because when when you think about owning a restaurant, you kind of don't realize how all of the experiences has led you up to this point mm-hmm. and how pivotal they became. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I was in high school. Um, Construction was my thing. And so, yeah, yeah. So I actually had a a scholarship to uh, Milford to, for um, construction management. Uh And so I was, I was working and laying brick and block and, um, and actually in, in Grand Island at their high school, they have a program where you build a house. Like your senior year, you have two classes at the end of the day and it's like, I can't remember if it was like 12 of us that got in a van. Uh-huh. And every day through the whole year, you just start to finish. You just build a house. Wow. And so every day we'd come in. And so um, so that was part of it, of just like I was constantly into that um, hands-on work. And um, I was really loving it. But um, it's kind of nice when... Um, some people that you look at and and you really value their their experience kind of look at you and they just go, I don't think you want to get into this. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's a good really? sign. Yeah. Okay. You know. And so I kind of um, I had so I mean all that time I had been playing in bands and writing music, playing guitar, um, playing piano. I grew up playing piano. So music was always involved, but I always kind of thought, I don't want to get into that. I don't want, I'm not a, not trying to be a musician, yeah. you know? And so next thing I know, I'm not going to construction management and I'm got to pick a field. I, I got to do something, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so, uh, there's a community college in Norfolk that has an audio recording program. And so I was like, you know, that'd be cool. Let's, let's hop into it. Let's do this. And then it was just all in from that point. So, I mean, graduating from there and working in studios, mostly working on the road. Mm-hmm. So like getting live sound gigs, just doing all these like big concert venues and then trying to create my own stuff and being in bands, traveling around. And so I did that for, I'm not hearing a lot of pastry here. This is like no, no. the most interesting story. I'm so yeah. excited to see where this goes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, so, um, yeah, we'll kind of get back to it because you have all these things in your background that you're not even thinking about. Right. And so all my time growing up, like, um, I, I think if I could summarize it, it was, it was a lot of sports. It was a lot of community It was a lot of, um, just nonstop going and always having things to do. But the one, and so our family never had like uh, a sit down dinner. It was just never, 
Mm. There was no time. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody's schedules were so staggered. Um, My dad was a a football coach. And so like from, um, you know, August to October, November. He just swamped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, it was the crock pot, you know, so that's what dinner was. It was the crock pot. But on the weekends, it was Saturday specifically. I can remember that's when we would like hone in on baking stuff. Mm -hmm. That's where we would take the time. You know, for dinner, we were just like, you know, we'd have this thing called football stew. And it was was, uh, uh, beef chuck and it was uh, celery, carrots, um, onion uh-huh. and then just like a nice vegetable broth in there and like just throw it in there and that's that's the stew but on on the weekends like we would hone in I, I remember working on a, a cheesecake recipe for just months and just like dialing in of like what is the temperature of our actual oven like how is it that why is it that I'm getting this crack in the center of it how do I get like a nice sheen over it you know what is a New York style what is a what is an Italian cheesecake, you know, mm-hmm. and, and what are these different techniques? Should we use a water bath? Like, and so it kind of dives into actually like what my family is because I have engineers, mathematicians as family members. And so we're very methodical. We don't really fly off the cuff. It's not like sporadic. Mm-hmm. And, and baking so, is a science. It's very baking exact. Baking is a science. And, and actually I've, so I kind of separate chefs and bakers into oh, yeah. two different levels. So like, Bakers are much more methodical. They're thinking things out. They're planning ahead. Chefs will just take that recipe, just throw it out the window. And uh-huh. they're just like, no, 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 no. We'll do this. We'll do this. That doesn't work. Okay, let's move on. Here we go. Let's, you know, it's uh-huh. just like, and so chefs are faster. Bakers are slightly slower, you know, like, and so like, if you put a baker on the line, you know, they're just like slowing people down. Mm-hmm. If you put a chef in the, in the bakery, then all of a sudden they're just like, so I have to, I have to weigh it. Like to this exact amount. Can I just like, it seems like enough. Well, it, it's just hilarious. I, just a quick interjection that yeah. you mentioned that is my wife and I, we just like over quarantine, our thing has been, we discovered top chef and mm. we've just been binging that like crazy. I don't know why we weren't watching it for years, but it's hilarious because usually once or twice a season, they'll have to bake desserts and all <laughs> the chefs are just like, Oh no, this yeah. is that episode. Yeah. And they have no idea what to do because yeah. it is so different. That's yeah. such a good point. Anyway, I'm sorry to no, interrupt. Like I just... They, they want to constantly open the oven. It's like, <laughs> yes. no, 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 like leave it. Like yeah. come back in 35 minutes. Like, ah, right. Yeah. Know. They're just letting all the heat escape. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, I, I found out that like, I kind of discovered uh, just like self-discovery of like, Oh, I guess like my temperament is more methodical. Like baking is like something I really think about. Like when I think about savory items, I kind of, I, I I want it more planned out. I want it more methodical. I'm not really a fast, just like throw it all together kind of a person. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, like I guess jumping back, you know, uh, so I, um, I'm, doing audio engineering, I'm traveling around. And then I get to this point where I think, you know, I've got to settle down. I've got to like, I've got to live in one place for at least a year, you Mm -hmm. know, like I've got to stop because I can't see, I can't see myself being a person that's just on the road nine months out of the year. You know, I've quickly discovered that. So I thought, well, I need, I'll work in a studio. I'll do audio recording and I'll just like work in a studio. That's a fixed thing. And um, I'll, I'll start there. And so 
trying to find a studio that will do an uh, internship or some type of mentorship. Um, I ran into, not ran into, <laughs> I, uh, I, I started going through all my favorite records and trying to find some common denominators. And so Tarquin Studios was the one that came up. And Tarquin um, is owned by Peter Caddis, and he's done records like Interpol and Mates of States and um, let's see here. I'm probably stumbling on a bunch of good ones. But um, Tokyo Police Club okay. and all these records. So um, I was like, I want to do that. Where is he? You know, he's in Connecticut. Okay, looks like I'm moving to Connecticut. And so I moved to Connecticut, didn't know anybody, um, found found uh, a place on Craigslist, and then just started making it work, trying to find um, trying to find a community to be around. And so um, while I was at the studio, I was learning a ton. Um, being around some incredibly talented people. Um, but once again, it came down to listening to these people that you aspire to and them kind of saying like how they got there and you make you wonder, do I want to go through this or mm-hmm. do I really see myself doing this? You know, so he um, he had some real breaks leading up to it. And, and it was just that like um, he had worked on he had been working in New York and he was working at incredible studios and he even said he's like you know it's really hard to do this unless you're doing what you want to do and recording who you want he said I was I was working and I remember looking at the at the calendar and thinking to myself who am I working with today is that he he was looking and saw NSYNC and in Vogue Uh he's like which one is the the little white dudes that that sing together? And he knew at that point he was like, I don't actually like this. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm I'm doing huge records, and this is not fun. Like, and so he built his own place, and I was just, you know, I just couldn't. I was just falling out of music. I I think I had the the best part was I had finally found my burnout point. Mm-hmm. I had worked so hard and I had done so much that um, I had actually burnt myself out and I fell out of love with it. And it was a great feeling to know what it's like to burn yourself out. I think sometimes people ask me, they're like, oh, you work so much. Like, you know, like, yeah, slow down. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, I'm I'm not working too much. Mm-hmm. I, I know. I've actually reached my burnout yes, point. Yes. So I'm good, you know. Uh-huh. And so... Um, so, but as we were in the studios, he loved to cook. He had a Czech background. Mm-hmm. And so we were, I remember specifically, we had so much more fun in his kitchen. So I, I guess I should elaborate. His studio is in the top of his house. Oh, okay. And so he bought this old, like, um, late 1800s um, house in, I can't remember actually what... Connecticut has so many little cities. I can't ever remember what city he's in, but um, what his, his township is. And so he has this beautiful house. And so we would always cook dinner in there. And everybody had so much more fun cooking. Uh-huh. Like we would, um, Tokyo Police Club and the assistant engineer, myself and Peter, were all in the kitchen 
and it was so much more relaxed. And I was just like looking around and thinking, if we could take this into the studio, I think things would be better. Mm-hmm. And then I just started to wonder, man, what is it with this cooking? Like this, this There's is very communal. Special here, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and I, and I fell in more. I fell more in love with food when I was in Connecticut because um, New Haven. I mean, it, it's like the start of our United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first hamburger was created there. The community of Italians that that came over to there. I mean, it, if you ever get a chance, I mean, I will still say to this day, the best pizza, bar none anywhere, is in New Haven. Really? Yeah. Okay. Between Sally's and Modern and Frank's and all of these people places, and I haven't figured out this one yet, but it's all it says a pizza. It's never like Frank's Pizza, uh-huh. Sally's Pizza, Modern Pizza. It's Modern a Pizza. Huh. And so, like, they have their That's own. Odd. If you ever look their up own, New like, Haven. Nomenclature? Yeah. Huh. If you look up New Haven pizza, people will go off about it. I mean, it's just its own <laughs> thing. And so, diving into these things, finding out the origins of stuff, it's just like, oh, my goodness. Like, what are some of the origins? What, what have I been eating? Like, these breads that I eat or I had eaten in the Midwest, where did that come from? Like, you know, it doesn't. What are these shapes? What are these processes? And so it kind of, it, it, it was this dovetail aspect of that and falling into that. And so when I was in Connecticut, I was, my friends were living in New York. So I was going there a lot just to visit them. And it seems silly, really silly now. I mean, because people are watching like Top Chef and they're mm-hmm. watching all these shows. But when I was in Connecticut at that time, I mean, there was Food Network, but, um, I had never thought about chef as a career. Mm-hmm. I, I I was living in Grand Island growing up, and everybody that I knew cooked it was it was a diner, and they're all just like, "Oh, I'm just doing this and moving on to the next thing," or you know, or this is job job for now. Mm-hmm. And and so I never thought like, "Oh, I could I could be like a chef for a career like this could be a thing moving forward," and then. All of a sudden going to New York and finding these patisseries and like these bakeries. I'm like, I could be, I could only make desserts <laughs> and like, and that's all I do. I just make, this is incredible. Uh-huh. Like I would go to a place and I'm like, you only make pies. The, how can you do? I want to know more. Like, uh-huh. and so like in New York, you can like dive into these places. I mean, the best part about New York is that there's no um, best restaurant talks you know like there's more like where can i get the best scone yeah hey uh who has the best like sourdough uh-huh. you know oh who has the best noodles you know and it's it's very specific and it's um it's fantastic and so so that's that's how i kind of it dawned on me at that point i was like i'm moving to new york it's right it's right over there i'm moving there like i've got friends there like that's what i'm doing i'm moving to new york and so so that's how the whole culinary th- aspect started okay so that's how you caught the bug that's how you got excited but how did you how did you get your start how did you like i'm assuming you found a kitchen to bake in or, <laughs> or you started standing somewhere yeah. oh, like- okay so um french culinary institute is in new york so yeah i enrolled there oh there you go so i was like all right enrolling here let's um let's get a job 
<laughs> so um, there was a bunch of Whole Foods that were just like coming in New York. I applied mm-hmm. there, but that was such a competitive market. And so I was just trying to find jobs wherever I could. Um, so finally, um, there was a new restaurant that was opening in Soho. And it was, uh, it's called um, Delicatessen. And I was like, they're looking for a pastry chef. I was like, I need, I like need to get into this. I will bullshit my way through anything. <laughs> like I, I bet if I can just get in there, I can just show them. Right. You know, I had no clue what I was in for. And so uh, I show up and, and like, let this just be a lesson to people that like, if you show up on time and you put in the energy and you listen you're going to get far. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's true. So, so I showed up and I was just a little bit more in, up for anything. You know, so um, there were three other people and, and the, the chef doing the interview, he goes, all right, so who's up, who's up for uh, doing some massaging right now? Other people are like, oh, no, no. And sorry, just so you know, a stage is somebody that's unpaid Mm -hmm. and they come into a restaurant and it's a learning experience. Mm -hmm. And so you can stage at any restaurant. Mm -hmm. All the fine dining places around the world offer stages. So um, I was like, I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm in. You know, so these other people are like, oh, I got to go. You know, other interviews. And these were graduates. So I was like, yeah, I'm in. He's like, okay, great. Uh, Chef coats are over there. Uh, what else? You know, chef coats are over there. That's a changing area. And then I'll see you in the kitchen. I'm just like, okay. All right. And so, uh, long story short, I ended up, uh, making crepes for eight hours. I was in that kitchen for eight or nine hours doing, and I was only making crepes Mm -hmm. and it was just a test to see, can he get better? How does he start? And over eight hours, I got I got really great at crepes, uh-huh. you know. And so I was just shooting the shit. Sorry, that's Can fine. I? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm shooting the shit with all these people and just just having fun, just trying to be a part of the team. And that's all I need. That's all I needed, you know. So I hop on the train, and by the time I get off, I have a voicemail that says like, "We'd love to have you. Come on board. You know, when can you start?" And so. Um, delicatessen is a, is a, um, uh, what is, I'm trying to think how they describe themselves. Um, international comfort food. Oh, okay. I love that idea. Yeah. So, I mean, it's doing like fish tacos, but using monkfish or like, um, you know, some of the desserts we would do where we do like a s'mores dish, but we would like fry the marshmallows, make our own graham crackers and beautiful dipping sauces and using like Valrona chocolates or whatever we had at the time. Um, so I got the job and um, I loved it. it. New York is crazy and that restaurant was insane of just like working in the hottest kitchen I've ever been in mm-hmm. icing every cake in the cooler because like if it would just melt mm-hmm. if I was at, uh, actually out in the, on the table there. Um, and you know, just like people reaching for herbs around you, like while you're trying to ice a cake. Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, so I, I was, uh, 
enrolled to go to French Culinary Institute. And then the guy who interviewed me, his name um, is Jimmy DiStefano. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy, he's the greatest chef I've ever been around. He's incredible. He was so great that the restaurant actually didn't have him as the pastry chef. He was the consultant. They couldn't afford him Mm -hmm. to be there full time. And every time I was around this guy, I just learned so much. I couldn't believe like he knew exactly where vanilla beans came from. He could tell me everything about um, any of the dairy that we had brought in. Like he was a part of the per- a part of the team that figured out like how you could fry a marshmallow without it like actually melting everywhere and destroying your fryer mm-hmm. and all these things. And so I got to this. And so as I'm working, I'm there for you know like I'm. I'm trying to think when school is going to start because I can't remember when I moved there. But at some point, there were a whole bunch of Culinary Institute um, graduates that had been fired, like a handful of them, like while I was there. Mm -hmm. And I started to just think, like, do do I – should I even go to school? Mm -hmm. I I mean, I'm here. I'm still doing doing it. Uh And, like, things are going well. And I got worried about like teachers, you know, like I was like this guy that I'm working with part time, like he's just here when he can. Um, He's the greatest teacher I've ever been around, you know. And so and so he wasn't going to be around much longer. And I just came up to him and I said, Jimmy, like. I don't know if school's for me. What do I have to do to just be around you all the time? Like, is there <laughs> is there something that I will work for free? I will do whatever you need. Uh huh. He's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can just call it a permanent stage with me, um, and then I just I be, I will tell you everything I know and teach you everything I know. I just have a couple of rules: just stay out of my way and don't make me repeat myself. We'll be good. I was like, I am so in, man. And so with Jimmy, we um, he opened up many more restaurants. And anytime I had free time, I was just around him. I was picking his brain. I was asking him about cookbooks to buy. I was going to every bakery that he suggested. I was just blowing money on any and everything I, like he told me. So like buying specific knives, like going, trying out certain bakeries, something new that opened, you know, and. I mean, he even opened up a a Michelin star rated restaurant that was dietary specific. So all of our recipes had to be turned into a dietitian and we had to reach certain uh, sugar marks and. Oh boy. Yeah. And so like learning. That's a whole new level. Learning so much about date sugars and beet sugars, every, every type of sugar, understanding like calorie content. And so, um, so that's where I was, and I just I dropped out of school, and then I just kept staging with him, and I staged at more places, and it just kept working. And so um, that's how life was in New York. Um, it was incredible. Um, and so this is where it like gets to the dark part. Um, you know, I uh, I was working the late night shifts, and. So I would get off work at like 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. and um, I rode my bike every day. And um, I can't tell you what happened because it's gone. I don't I don't know what happened. But I was hit by a taxi. Oh, boy. 
Yeah. So, um, unconscious for a couple days in the hospital. Um, and like, it's just this part, those memories are just gone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it wasn't too dark because at least I don't remember it. So I just like wake up in the hospital and I'm just surrounded by family and people and, and it's just like the scary moment. So, um, I, uh, I was bedridden for, I don't know, a solid month and then rehabbing in, uh, New Jersey. Um, I had, uh, some friends that lived in Trenton. They let me, um, stay over there while I rehabbed. And then, um, then it was like, uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make it back. And Mm -hmm. the, I don't know. I don't know what was going on, but I was extremely sensitive to sounds and I just became sensitive in, in my brain for everything. So I couldn't, um, I, I couldn't watch TV. It was, it was like too loud. It was just, um, walk, standing up for so long, I would get dizzy. Um, and so I got to this point where I was like, I'm kind of a very like motivated, driven person. And sometimes that can be detrimental towards you. So I, I like rushed myself back too soon. I was like, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to get back. I'm going to get right back in the kitchen, you know, f- all this. Like I can do this. Like this is, it's just all in my brain right now. It's like, you know, I've got like contusions and hemorrhages uh, and, and, and things going on up there, but like, you know, I can still stand, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just, I rushed it and I just, I fell apart. I just couldn't handle New York anymore. I couldn't handle, I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't, the, the sound was too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's only like so much I could keep going back to Jersey where Jersey was quiet. Jersey was um, a safe haven, you know? And so my parents offered to, to fly me back to Nebraska. Um, my friends were, were, really great about letting me out of the lease. So uh, in New York, so I, uh, yeah, I, I come back to Nebraska and, um, and I just start, start baking start living at my parents' house and trying to, trying to get back on my feet. Um, and then, and so I just started working again, you know, when I could, I started working at Whole Foods and then I, lo and behold, like this city has a, has a way of trapping you, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, there's just like a lot of people that have come here and they're like, oh yeah, I just moved here one year and I thought I'd be here a year and yeah. next thing you know, yeah, it's yeah. the exact same thing with me. You know, I just, I started working, I started working on recipes, I started honing in on my craft. Um, and then at some point I was just like, man, there's no, like, there, I don't, there's not really many pastry chef jobs here in Omaha. Mm-hmm. You know, at this time, I mean, um, if if you work at a restaurant, um, there's not a lot of work for you to do as a pastry chef. You always end up having to do something else. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a place like, um, you know, like Dario has mm-hmm. Dario and uh, Avoli. Yeah. And um, so he has a pastry chef that, has a, that's a full-time pastry chef because they've got two restaurants to work at, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, but, um, so I was like, I need to create my own place. Like there's no, 
um, there had been some great bread makers in Omaha, um, but it had ebbed and flowed, you know, um, like the, the bread oven, you know, that's, that's gone. Uh, there was, there was actually a place, um, called like Omaha sourdough and I had met the owner. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I still haven't, I, every once in a while I'll run into people that are like, this reminds me of Omaha sourdough. And you're like, what? Like I gotta, I wish I could have tried this place, but you know, so artisan bread was hard to come by. I mean, you have, um, Le Cordier, but they're in Lincoln, you know? And mm-hmm. so they're bringing everything here. And so I was so inspired by tartine in San Francisco and tartine's whole thing is that bread is coming out in the afternoon because like toast is for breakfast, bread is for dinner, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. why should, why should we be like these bakeries and have breads at like 7am who needs bread at 7am? Like, yeah. no, you need an afternoon. So I was so inspired by this. And so, um, I wanted to start my own place. And so, um, man, once we start diving into this stuff, this is, this is where it like really gets intense of trying to open up your own place, especially when you don't think about when you've never had to think about how much does it cost to open these things? And like, how does it work with lending a bank? Like I get all of my money from the bank, you know, what's an SBA loan, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, those things become really difficult to get your mind around. So um, I was like, I'm going to start small. I'm going to do, I want to do like a food cart. You know, I want to do, I'm going to do kolaches. I'm going to do basically, I was like, runs are great, but the kolache is where it's at. Like we could do, we can do like chicken spinach artichoke. We can do like, um, we can do a better runza. We could do like vegan runzas. We can do all these things, you know. And so I was, so I searched for a kitchen. Um, and long story short, I didn't, uh, I couldn't, it w- just wasn't feasible to get a food cart. Um, but I was able to get a c- commercial kitchen. And then it's like, all right, where am I going to sell? And I started selling at a, at a coffee shop called Caffeine Dreams. And so I started making these kolaches and trying to build up as I'm doing that, I'm trying to build up, build my business plan, trying to figure out like financially what I could do. And that was just so hard because, um, people talk about like, Oh, you just, you got to get an investor. You might need to get an investor. Da, da, da. Like, where, where are people getting investors? Are these things, are they on like Craigslist? Like who, <laughs> yeah. who gets investors? Just Google you know? how to get investor. Yeah. 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 <laughs> how to find I mean, investors. yeah. And so, that was just off the, off the table. It's Uh like, okay, I can't find an investor. Okay. Like how much is the bank going to give me? And then like, you have all these bankers that are like, yeah, we'd love to get you a loan, fill out this paperwork. Long story short, they don't really care about a lot of the paperwork. They just look at what do you own and what are you going to give us when this collapses? Because it's going to collapse. We just assume this, you know? And so they're like, you don't own anything. We can't give you any money, you know? And that, and the tough part about SBA loans is that, um, they really want to give you money if you have like a spouse that's not dependent and they have their own job. So you're not 100% dependent on this thing that they're planning on failing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so, so I'm single. And so it's really like, okay, well, F- SBA is off the, le- off the ledge there. All right. So I just started. And then finally, um, Pinnacle Bank was incredible. I found a banker that was 100% transparent with me. And he's like, listen, if you find a spot, build up a business plan, 
shoot me a number. Let's see where we're at, you know? And so for months and for a year, it was just like, no, absolutely not. Nope. No, not going to happen. Nah. And so like finally, um, I found a spot downtown, a place that had, I mean, I love it when people say, oh man, I love your spots. Incredible. You got such a great spot, you know, because for the first two years, all I kept hearing was this place is haunted. There's so many places that have failed in here. <laughs> like, oh yeah. You know, like, you know what this place used to be? Like you have all of these stories. And so like, it's just one of those like cursed locations yeah, where it, yeah. it's just a new tenant every year. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Even if they could do that, I mean, there was huge gaps where there wasn't anything. Oh, really? I mean, yeah. yeah, because it was where the where the original First National Bank mm, mm-hmm. is built in 1908, flourishing. There's Russell Stover's in our spot. There's like this Bucks Bootery that's just around the the corner there. It's an incredible thing going on. And then like once First National leaves, the building basically is empty. It's an empty for 30 years, and then it's a long story. But, um, so yeah, like, um, I finally found a banker that was honest with me. And then from there he got me, um, uh, an amount that I could work with. And then from there it was really just, um, getting these really horrible short term, uh, or what, it, what are they called? Um, uh, leasing equipment. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, I mean, that's just for people that are in a rut where it's just like, Oh yeah, I'll pay. (laughs) Like what's the interest on these loans? Like I have to pay it back in how many months? Oh, okay. Well, it's like, this is my only option. And so, yeah, it was just a bunch of horrible, like short-term leases. And, but the thing that I, the thing that I love about this is you're talking about all these struggles, but I don't really sense there was really a time where you were like, okay, I'm not doing this. Forget this. This is all too hard because <laughs> uh-huh. you just, you love the baking so yeah, much yeah. and you were so into it that it was just For like, sure. I'm going to figure this stuff yeah. out no matter yeah. how long it takes them or how many banks turn me down. I am opening this <laughs> yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was just a lot of things that were missing. I felt like in Omaha at that time. I mean, this is, oh man, it's going to be almost eight years or it's going to be seven years in, mm-hmm. in August. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there was block 16 right next to us. And then there was a lot of nothing. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel bad. I'm probably going to forget a bunch of things, but I mean, I've heard your podcast. There are so many places that you're talking to. They, they were nowhere near being it open. Didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so whether it's like breweries that are all around town or, um, some of these incredible, like fine dining places, um, like, varieties of pizza i mean like i was the pastry chef that um created the the dessert menu for pitch oh really so um when i was at pitch i was there at the very beginning uh-huh. and like even pitch was like it was like the same time as dante uh-huh. you know and so that was like wild was revolutionary yeah, yeah. You know, for like, omaha at least all these yeah. people have coal fire ovens <laughs> yeah. and you're like oh wow you know like and i mean Pitch was incredible of, um, we brought, I mean, I'm trying to think of some of the first people that were bringing in a lot of local ingredients. Um, some of the people that come to mind are like Kevin Shin from, um, the bread and from bread and cup and Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately they're closed, mm-hmm. but 
he was like one of the first that I can remember. And then the, obviously like um, Boiler Room, Block 16. Um, but so when Pitch was, and I mean, that is high volume place. I mean, um, when we were bringing in local ingredients, it was just like, this is exciting. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Who is this guy? His name's Dean. What's <laughs> Plum Creek Farms? Yes. Cool. Where are you at? You know, and like, uh, I mean, just squeaky greens. Oh man, where are you at? Like, what do you provide? Tell me more about this or that. And so, you know, yeah, that drive was there because it's like, man, there needs to be, there's, there's more, people want more stuff here. Like uh-huh. people want, um, better bread. People want, I mean, I couldn't think of places that you could get like a great breakfast sandwich. Mm-hmm. Like when we opened, we had so many, I mean, even in our review, um, which which we, we've had great reviews, but even in our review, it said, is this place a coffee shop or a, or a restaurant? You know, so that idea was just so far out there. Like, yeah. I mean, every coffee shop was just, well, we have coffee and we got like a scone or a muffin, mm-hmm. maybe a cookie. But for somebody to be like, so you mean, you mean to tell me I can get, you make the croissants here. I can get a latte and I can get like a breakfast sandwich or like um, crispy potatoes and a turkey melt or like you guys are making this here. This isn't, you didn't just go to Sam's and you're like throwing this all together. And uh-huh. it's like, yeah, like, you know, so are you a restaurant or a coffee shop? <laughs> it's like, well, we're a cafe. Uh this this is kind of like this is an culture. actual thing you don't know yeah. about it yet but yeah. this is real yeah like you should be able to come in like i mean we had we had this couple that would come in every day like right when we opened like um early in the morning but this is within like the first few years of us opening and they had overnight shifts and so right when we opened that was like their date night they could, oh wow they could get a quality old fashioned at 8 in the morning and like he could get biscuits and gravy and I can't remember what she was getting at the time. But like that is so those cool. those things where it's just like, yeah, like we should be into moderation more. You know, like why is it the other thing about cafe culture and being able to get these things whenever you want is that we should be adopting more of like being able to pace ourselves throughout a day. So, like, why is it that back when people were driving to work, <laughs> you know, before this, all this, mm-hmm. um, on the radio, all you hear is, oh, got a case of the Mondays. Oh, bummer Mondays. Can't wait for the weekend. And it's just like we're amping these people up for, for drinking. And it's just like as fri- soon as Friday hits, boom, like let's hit the ground running. And yeah. it's like, why, why can't we just, like, moderate throughout the week? Like, mm-hmm. why should you be looked, why should you think of yourself differently because you want an old fashioned at one in the afternoon? Like you may, some people can't drink coffee at all at night. Some people can drink a ton, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, why should you have to wait until like Friday or like, um, you know, until your peers are going to come down? It's like you, I mean, cause the funny part is it, it, um, when you think about like tasting, uh, like people that are um, doing a lot of coffee tastings or even people that are doing like maybe like um, coffee um, competitions and things, mm-hmm. they have to get a drink afterwards. 
when you're consuming that much coffee, like when we were first looking for roasters, you'd be drinking all of this coffee and it's like one in the afternoon. You're like, I have to have a drink. Because I am so amped up. I've got to find some normalcy yeah, here. Yeah, you got to mellow it out a Yeah, little. let's do this, you know. And so people have to be the same way with work. Like, I got up so early and I was so jacked up and I had all this stuff to do and I had to have this presentation at 9 and I crushed it. And it's like, yes, you should have a cocktail. You feel great. We're not saying, like, have five or six. Yeah, and like, get sloshed. Yeah. yeah, it's like you want to stay productive. So it's like you want to bring that high back down. And then you want to, you know, finish out the rest of your day. Now, you mentioned coffee and something I have to ask you about as, as we kind of wind down a little bit here. But I find it just so fascinating is you came into this, obviously, with the passion for baking. But from the research that I've done, you knew almost nothing about coffee. You came into that kind of blind and you you just kind of gave yourself like a crash course around the Midwest, just trying different roasters yeah. and, and trying to figure out which one do I like? You know, how do I develop yeah. my coffee palette? What was that like? Man, it's incredible how many times like community comes back around. I mean, you think about a lot of the farmers that you use. Mm -hmm. um, they have incredible product, but I'm sorry. Like the reason, a lot of the reasons why people use Plum Creek is because of Dean. Oh yeah. Dean is just... By far, if you, I, I just ask like every chef is like, is Dean your favorite person? It's like, yes, well, absolutely. Ev you even know? when you just said, when you said Dean a couple minutes ago, before we even said Plum Creek <laughs> Farms, I was like, oh yeah, that's yeah. what he's talking about. Because uh -huh. everyone always just says, oh, Dean from Plum Creek yeah. Farms. Like those two things are synonymous. So you talk to Dean and you can sense his passion. You taste the product. You love the product. But it's just that once you get to know that person, you're like, he has the same kind of values that I have towards my product. Yeah. So I feel extremely comfortable every week ordering that. If he was like this sporadic person that like was, you know, needing money at certain times mm -hmm. and just like had this like anxiety towards like food and was just always rushing and didn't seem to have, have a joy towards it, it kind of rubs off on the food, you know? And so when it came to coffee and finding the right person that can implement this. Like I had very specific um, requirements or very specific goals that I wanted to achieve with the roaster. So at that time, I'm looking at all of these single origin coffees and um, fair trade, direct trade, all these, this nomenclature. And I'm, I'm thinking you know, I want the most consistent, the best shot of espresso. I want it every day. Like, I want to find the best shot of espresso I can. Because, so I'm starting at this point thinking, I want the best espresso I can get. I want to have this every day. At this time, I was creating beignets. Mm -hmm. And like, and once I crafted the beignet to the way I wanted. I was like, every day I just want a shot of espresso and a beignet. And, and when I thought about that, I want the customer to have that experience. And I want them to have that experience every day. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to come in and be like, oh, the beignets are different. Oh, now you're doing this. It's like, no, you had that experience with that beignet. It should be the same. 
So with a shot of espresso, I want the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm taking it off the table of these single origin espressos. Like this means that you're bringing from a specific farm. It's only allotted so much. How long is that good for? Then is it going to be, what, what am I going to be diving into six months from now? Like I want the same espresso. And so I go into Broadway, Broadway roasting in Kansas city and I had a shot of their espresso and it just knocked me on my ass. I was just like, this has everything. The crema is so velvety, like the richness, the bold, the sweet, like this is the knew. most well-rounded shot. Who are these people, you know? And, <laughs> and so that's when I ran into um, Brian, who was their wholesaler at the time, and then introduced me to the roaster, John, and owner. And their values towards coffee was everything that I could ever want of they are direct trade. They are bringing in organics like coffee beans, but John is traveling constantly, working with farmers, bringing equipment to them, trying to build uh, up their communities. He's even politically involved with a lot of these countries of mm -hmm. trying to help them out. And so he has those values and you're just like, my goodness, like I want to be attached to a person like this. And, and so with him, he's bringing in all these great coffees, but in the end, he always says like his Brazil, it's always a different farmer. It's always a different like region, but it's the same flavor profile. Mm -hmm. So he seeks out very specific Brazil, mm -hmm. you know? And so when I get Brazil, I'll see all different elevation changes and things like that. But at the same time, I drink it and it's the same thing, mm -hmm. you know? And so with that espresso, it's the most consistent thing. And so um, that's what I wanted to provide to the customers was like, I don't want to think and worry about coffee. I don't want to think about chicken. I don't want to have to worry about these chickens. Like I want the person to take care of the chickens. I want this, this roaster to take care of those farmers, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's where the, and then once I met those guys, actually when I was going to open, I was only going to do French press. I was like, we're just doing French press. That's it. And then once I met them, I was just like, Oh my goodness. Like we're buying an espresso machine. I don't care that I don't have any money. Like, yeah. I, like, where can I sell a kidney? Like, I don't know what I have to do. I'm doing this, you know? And so like, and Brian actually rebuilt uh, an espresso machine for oh, wow. me. Nice. And so I bought it from him and like, and then they've been incredible because there's been so many times where I have no money. And then they're like, well, we could probably buy it. And then, you know, you just pay us back. Yeah. And it's like, done, That's awesome. you know? And so they've done that so many times and been a great relationship. That's incredible. Um, I have enjoyed this conversation so much and I feel like I could go on for hours. This <laughs> Sorry, is just man. I don't even know if we talked much about food. No, or you're, if no you're good. This is fascinating. <laughs> I love this. Um, out of respect for your time though, I, I want, I want to ask one final question because I think this is really important, especially in these current times that we have, obviously restaurants are very different. You are doing something really cool. A, you are offering a delivery service. So people can go on culpertcafe.com right now and they can order all these baked goods. They yeah. can, like, I a couple weeks ago had a loaf of challah bread and a donut and some coffee delivered. We loved all of it. It was fantastic. Right. Yeah. It was safe to the door. We got a text beforehand that was like, hey, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Are you yeah. home? Yep. It, everything about it was great. 
But the one product that I have to ask you about specifically is the what's in a box. Mm-hmm. Just go ahead, give your two-minute pitch on that, why people need to order it, because I've seen so many pictures of people getting these, and they are just delighted by them. Nice, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is an opportunity for us as pastry chefs to just go off and not even have to worry about, um, oh, I have to make 20 of these, 15 of these. It's Because a lot of times batch sizes are, they all vary. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't. You can't time this all perfectly. And so it really lets us just spew it all out and just like make vast amounts of so many different products. So like, you know, I'll make a batch of brownies. Then I'm going to throw in a batch of Napoleons. I'm going to throw in a batch of um, Madeleines. I'm going to do a batch of these chocolate tarts. I'm going to make a white chocolate peanut butter mousse. And then like you make all these things and then you get your orders of boxes. And then it's just like, all right, let's fill it up. And so, you know, you just look at a box and it's kind of a fun thing to see, like, I mean, as I put each one together, it's fun to just be able to put like a theme that's only in my head. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure when they open it up, they just see like a whole bunch of pastries. But to me, you know, I see like, oh, country, uh, crunchy, velvety, chocolate, uh, moussey, lemon, sweet, fruit then like you see something else that's more like a cookie, you know, and I love to drop in things like a cinnamon roll or a pecan roll or like even donuts because you never know if somebody's had one of our donuts. Cause like, you know, when you put it upright, it doesn't take a, that much room. So I'll have a bunch of boxes and I'll be like, Oh, fit a donut and there, squeeze a donut donut in there, there yeah. you know? And so, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's a lot of fun. I had no idea it would take off as, as well as it did. It just, it was kind of a creative opportunity for me to make a bunch of things and then be able to not have to have to adhere to like, Oh, I have nine fruit tarts to make. I have to make six of these. It's like, well, let's just, you make fun. what you want and then you put yeah. it in a box yeah. and you deliver it to people and they love it. Yeah. Yeah. People have been great. I can't believe how receptive it's, it's been. So, yeah. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure having you on today, Luke. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks. So listeners, I mean, you've spent the last hour. You hear the passion. You hear the drive. You hear this guy's story. You know where he's come from and how much care he puts into his products. You can taste that. It comes through in every bite. I guarantee it. If you get something like from Colbert, you will not be disappointed. So definitely when things reopen... Hopefully sooner rather than later, go in and get pastries and everything, but order stuff online. It's totally safe. The product is made fresh and then delivered straight to your door in the morning. It's amazing. So I highly encourage you to do that. Until next time, Omaha, thanks for eating with me.